0: This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is September 30th, 2021. Today, we look at global equity markets over the third quarter and put factors in particular into focus. While markets continue to deliver positive performance during the quarter, Investors had a lot on their minds between the still prevalent Delta variant, the specter of inflation, and concerns over rising levels of corporate leverage. This was especially true in China. Perhaps not surprisingly, we saw a rotation to more defensive factors, such as minimum volatility and quality. Now, our guests provided their insights, of course, to help us pull apart these issues and others in the markets. But I should add that this time around, We asked them to do so with one hand tied behind their back, so to speak, because, because of production schedules, and I won't bore you with those, the interviews, well, they took place with a couple of days left in the quarter, to be honest. Now that said, the perspectives of our guests are wider and applicable over more than the last few months. We begin with the star of our quarterly series, Hitendra Varsani, part of MSCI's global research team based in London and accomplished duathlon participant. Hitenja reflected on the value factor specifically.
1: So those that have been following our podcast will have seen that we've reiterated this point many, many times. uh, And that's that the economic cycle that we've experienced uh, over the last 12 months has been much shorter than previous cycles. And that's because of the nature of this crisis. We've been Uh, in a health crisis, and there's been unprecedented uh, fiscal and monetary support during this uh, last 12 months. So from the downturn to the upswing of reopening of economies, we've highlighted that value typically outperforms during that early stage of recovery. And that's what we've seen. Now, following that trend of value outperformance earlier on, momentum picked up on some value exposure. Uh, as we highlighted in June. And this led to momentum having some of the lowest valuations that we've seen for over a decade. And it turns out that momentum was actually one of the strongest performing factor, if not the strongest performing factor over the last quarter. Now, will this continue? Uh, With value taking somewhat of a setback recently, momentum could potentially rotate away from that uh, exposure and potentially go into more defensive stocks like low beta and higher quality stocks. Value
2: dimmed. That's our second guest for this week. So uh, I'm Mark Carver. I head up our equity factor product business as well as our equity portfolio management business. So
0: the value factor.
2: You know, if if we think about it shining in the beginning of the year, it dimmed a little bit in the quarter. In fact, we saw weakness in value and yield um, or you know, equity income, if you will, while the best performing factor was momentum. And what's really interesting for someone who sits in my seat is we saw this both in our factor models or pure factors, if you will, where momentum has been the best performing factor uh, as well as in our factor indexes where uh, momentum has outperformed in virtually every region And that probably surprises clients that we've seen that kind of strength. And part of it is that, you know, we're we're moving in some of the developed markets from early cycle to mid cycle from an economic standpoint, and that can often be, you know, a good period for momentum investors. Despite that, if we look at ETFs, we actually saw money come out of momentum-based ETFs, both those linked to MSCI indexes as well as others.
0: But let's leave momentum behind a moment and keep moving forward. What other factors did well?
1: Uh, low volatility stocks outperform high volatility stocks. And then stocks with high quality fared well as well. But it wasn't the same everywhere. Now, within developed markets, we've seen continued corporate earnings recovery as economies reopen. But the indicators for economic growth that we look at have slowed down. And we've seen investors have shifted their attention from the upbeat in growth to now reassessing inflation risks, tapering in the U.S. markets, potential rate rises. Um, although this is not yet uh, prevalent in other markets like Europe or in Asia.
0: For more on that, let's turn to our third guest for the day.
3: This is Zhou Xu. I'm working in MSCI, covering APAC research and mostly working in the uh, index apply. Uh, research I based in Shanghai and in China. China equity market has suffered from big loss this year. The drawdown since the highest in February is more than 30 percent, and it continues in Q3. But interestingly, the local Asia market is relatively flat. The year-to-date return is close to 0 percent, although it's quite uh, volatile in between but from a factor's perspective. So in recent uh, quarters, we are still seeing uh, it's quite pretty similar to the global market. We are seeing the the quality, the momentum is still back into play. And also we are seeing some rebounds from the value side and high yield side as well. So that's probably due to those expensive uh, stocks or maybe maybe Uh, high volatility stocks, they are impacted, severely impacted during this certain period.
0: We're going to take a slight detour here to dig in a bit about those two sides or parts of the Chinese equity markets, the international and local markets, and how they differ. The momentum factor, actually, along with quality, provides an excellent example of this.
3: When when we're looking at the, the, the China market, both in China International and both in China uh, Asia market, the momentum and quality are on the top of the list regarding the the index performance. But they tend to perform you know differently. Uh, for example, in China International market, uh, it's dominated by some giant tech names listed in U.S. But in China Asia's, uh, previously, they are dominated by the retail market and uh, they are trading based on their um, gut feelings, uh, their, the, the, the story that they may be overheard uh, on the street, something like that. Because the retail uh, investors, the, the individual investors, they have different appetites uh, during investment. For example, they, they, they tend to have a shorter time horizon and they prefer. Sometimes they prefer volatility. So maybe let me give another example. So we have a, a mean volatility strategy in China Asia market, and over almost a 13 years period, the mean volatility delivered 2.2 percent annual active return, but with 4 percent lower annualized volatility comparing to its parent in the Asia market. But so far. Uh, we didn't see any successful products uh, in this area locally. So that's very very interesting that investors maybe totally ignore the long-term outperformance, but they are still more focusing on the volatile or maybe they even believe in some short-term stories. So that makes the market less predictable or maybe Um, um, unlike a very long-run investment horizon, right? Shuo went on
0: to explain that this dynamic is changing as institutional investors have increased their participation in the Chinese A-shares market. And local investors actually have started shifting more toward mutual funds as their investment vehicle of choice. Now, this is after they've been burned one too many times, collectively. But there is still a way to go. Even the oldest mutual funds may be younger than this century. But one trend we just heard about, around minimum volatility, that's MinVol to its friends, about that factor not attracting investor interest. Well, that one, that is not just a China issue. Let's follow the money and see where it goes.
1: Minimum volatility is a strategy that's designed to deliver lower volatility than the parent index. That's the main objective of that strategy. In a risk-on environment, investors have chased high beta stocks to capture the upswing in equity markets. So in the short term, yes, we have seen some outflows in minimum volatility ETFs, despite the long-term outperformance in risk-adjusted returns. Now, as we move through the cycle, perhaps, potentially, the demand for defensive positioning could be sought after. And so minimum volatility is designed to deliver lower volatility than the parent index could be a tool to manage risk in portfolios. When we
0: look at those defensive factors, how do the valuations stack up against those that tend to be more cyclical?
1: Great question. So we looked at the relative valuations of the two most popular defensive factors, minimum volatility and quality. And what we found is the relative valuation of min vol is at the lowest level relative to quality uh, not seen since over two decades. Quality has seen uh, a positive performance this year. It has accrued flows in terms of ETFs. And that's a tool perhaps that investors have used to uh, participate in equities, but also with a defensive stance. But perhaps MinVol has been unloved for too long, uh, given the flows that we've seen and the performance that we've seen. And that's led to this very discounted valuation relative to quality.
2: One of the greatest puzzles of the market is the question of do flows influence returns or returns influence flows? And A lot of really smart people have opined on this question, and I don't think there's a settled answer on that. What we do know for sure is that um, the flows to MinVol are negative. They've been negative for an extended period of time, but the performance in the quarter has started to improve. If we take a little bit longer look at minimum volatility in this case, I'm defining longer as if we go back to 2020 uh, and through you know where we sit today, there was this perception that it really performed badly in 2020, and in a year of crazy uncertainty, where you know we're all around the world were suffering through in a pandemic that nobody could see coming and that nobody was prepared for. Why wouldn't a defensive strategy do well? And the answer is very uh, is very interesting. When we look at the data now, again, I'm thinking about 2020. What we saw was an incredible rally of risk assets from you know the bottom of the market through the end of the year. We saw the strongest performance of risk assets. Um, we have a factor in our factor models called residual volatility. 2020 was the best year for performance for that factor in 40 years. And so it wasn't that we saw, you know, min vol or low vol disappoint. It was we saw this incredible, unprecedented rally of high volatility stocks. And that surprised probably everybody who looked at that data. Because of that, um, we've seen flows out of more defensive, particularly minimum volatility strategies. And that's just continued. So far.
0: We've got defensive factors starting to outperform, but retail investors, at least, not as fully committed to that direction. The question is, what's behind all this?
1: I think there's multiple things at play here. Tapering. Uh, If we look back at 2014, uh, that was a more volatile year than 2013 when the tapering was made, but then implemented the following year. The second is the seasonality in markets. Uh, October tends to be one of the most volatile months uh, alongside March, whether we're looking at uh, developed markets or emerging markets uh, going back to 2001. But I think also uh, one of the other risks that is emerging is slower growth going forward. So we've been through a period of unprecedented support and upswing in growth growth. Uh, Indicators as economies reopened, but the question is how sustainable this will be as tapering gets rolled out.
2: The things that people uh, are really thinking about are inflation and rates, right? So, will we have potentially high inflation? They're thinking about employment and, and the pace of the recovery. Is it sustainable? They're thinking about the Delta variant. What does this mean for both of those things, both employment and you know the strengthening weakening or the impact on the on the recovery and for sure people are are worried about all of this because um you know the fed and government policies can influence uh, obviously the pace of markets and so the reaction of the european central banks clearly the us fed uh chinese regulation what is this going to mean for markets these are the things that clients are thinking about and they're trying to figure out how they reposition portfolios given various scenarios that could play out. Um, I think people accept the fact that rates are going to go higher. The question is the pace of that move and the levels that they settle on. And you know the uh, the average person recognizes that modest rates can be good for equity investors because. Uh, At the end of the day, companies uh, may have their top line benefit from uh, modestly higher inflation, for instance, but uh, higher inflation rather than modest inflation, but high inflation uh, can actually be uh, detrimental to some investors. Our research team put out some really interesting analysis early in this quarter, in fact, looking at the performance of factor indexes specifically in periods of low moderate or high inflation and what we can very see very clearly see in that data is that the factor performance does vary based on the levels of inflation you know you might see for instance in periods of high inflation things like size or low volatility do relatively well where growth is a winning factor in periods of low inflation
0: one other issue that's keeping some investors up at night might have a familiar ring to
1: it. Over the last um, five to six years or so, we have seen leverage increasing in certain pockets of China, uh, particularly in the real estate sector. And the recent events is a stark reminder of the consequences of taking high leverage. Uh, It creates more volatility uh, in the market. And so based on the events that we've seen, Uh, That's somewhat uh, spooked investors more broadly outside China, also spilling into Asian markets more broadly. To be
0: precise, corporate leverage was high in many markets, but China did stand out. And the poster child for leverage in Chinese real estate has been Evergrande and its possibility of default. Now, while Evergrande is not the only company in question here, I asked Tatendra about the possible parallels. The words leverage in real estate, you can't help but think back to global financial crisis. Could that be on investors' minds, like that association?
1: We have seen parallels uh, with the Lehman event and the collapse of uh, a major institution uh, that at the time had major repercussions on global markets, given the interconnectedness and globalization of financial markets, uh, whether uh, the same could be said about uh, the events we've seen in China is questionable, uh, whether it's a contagion event or an isolated event.
3: So actually the policy to control, or maybe the regulations to control the house price is not just uh, happened in uh, this year. So it's already announced uh, five or six, even six years ago. But recently uh, we are seeing it uh, force onto the ground, maybe more uh, solid, in detail uh, process and uh, maybe uh, some uh, detailed rules applied into those companies. And we are seeing the regulators published a lot of uh, rules uh, to control the bank side, uh, because uh, previously the, those real estate companies, they borrowed a lot of money uh, from the bank. So it could be uh, maybe becoming a, a system systematic uh, issues in the a, in a financial system, but we are we already saw some uh, regulators um, taking action last year to, to stop such kind of uh, bank uh, debt uh, into those real estate companies. Uh, the the reason behind it is the top priority of China government is stable. So, for example, if uh, comparing to to a fifty percent loss in a single year, so a 5% annual loss across 10 years is more acceptable. So the China government may try to diverse the single loss into a multi-period, so which means it will be uh, less suffered in a single year. So that could be m- much, much smaller squeeze on liquidity and the sudden uh, avoiding some certain kind of prices in the in, in, in market.
0: As we spoke some more, Schwab compared the potential approach to the difference between basically letting the air seep slowly from a balloon versus simply popping it. And to his point, on the day we're recording this, there was news. Evergrande agreed to sell a 20% stake in one of its banks with the corporate debt on its books to the local Shenyang government. And so investors around the world continue to watch. And that brings us to something Mark and I spoke about as he was talking about potential reasons behind the shift toward defensive factors and how part of it may be, like so much else these days, linked with how the world has changed since March 2020.
2: I think the first thing we should realize is the interconnected of us as a global community. And, you know, at MSCI, we often say and, you know, um, we hear this from from our leadership team, including you know Henry Fernandez. we are we should be global citizens. And I think what the pandemic showed us is we should be because we had a global experience. We had a common experience of having to deal with this pandemic. Uh, and that was a unique experience, probably for everybody, that brought, I think, some level of, you know, we're in this together attitude. But it did signal just how connected the, the world economies are, because what we know is that we have global supply chains. And as in, you know people tried to get goods and just to buy common consumer products, there were shortages. Why? Because global supply chains were shut down. Why were they shut down? Because people couldn't go into work. We couldn't produce the goods and services that people typically consume. And this was not unique to someone who lives in Westport, Connecticut, like I do. It was common across the world. But that commonality did mean that we had to think about the connectedness of markets, what it meant. And then for investors, when we think about 2020, part of the reason we saw some of the performance of uh, assets that we observed was that many investors couldn't price the fundamentals of companies with a lot of confidence because how's it you know how do you predict the earnings power of a company when you're not even sure if they're you know they're going to have the supplies they need to produce their goods and that changed the, the overall dynamics of the way we live the way we work the way we price assets from a market standpoint and in some ways You know, this may end up being a positive thing that we realize just how connected, how dependent we are on each other around the world.
0: So where do we go from here? What are investors thinking about as they begin the last leg of 2021?
2: I often talk about this notion of asset allocation 3.0. And, you know, maybe I'm going to have to come up with a new term because that, that one doesn't seem to be catching on. But the idea is really simple where. Once upon a time, we thought about stocks, bonds, cash. And then investors were starting to say, look, I'm going to overweight this region, underweight another, I'll overweight equities, I'll underweight fixed income, but with a little bit more precision. Today, we go for even further precision where we'll say, not only do I want to overweight one region and underweight another, but I'm going to be more specific in the way I want to take that exposure. And so more and more of our clients are thinking this way, and what they're saying is, while the US might have a strong reopening, what types of exposures do well in you know, markets that are reopening, in effectively in a more pro-cyclical environment, while other economies are farther behind? And we're seeing more of our clients think in these terms, where they might take one exposure in the US, another in Europe, still another in the emerging markets, and this is allowing them to do this, you know, as I call it, asset allocation 3.0, bring an additional lens of precision, and it's it's very clearly different than the things that were on the minds of our clients three, five, uh, you know,
1: six years ago. So we have a few days until we update our adaptive multi-factor allocation model, uh, which gives indicators for factor performance. But having said that what's on investors' minds at the moment, Uh, concerns around the slowdown in economic growth, um, the attention on inflation risks rising again, uh, tapering in the US. We've also in a period of seasonality of historically higher volatility. And so that has motivated some investors to think about defensive positioning. And as we've talked about earlier, We have seen defensive factors outperform over the last quarter, led by minimum volatility, quality, alongside momentum as well.
0: That's all for this week. Our thanks to Hatendra, Mark, and Shuo, and to all of you for listening. For a look at what the model showed once the quarter actually ended, we will follow up with Hatendra with an interview that you'll be able to find on the MSCI LinkedIn feed. You can also check out the latest installment of the Factors in Focus blog and register for this quarter's Markets in Focus webinar, all at msci.com. Please, if you enjoy the show, share it with colleagues, subscribe, and leave a comment. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is
2: MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.